All right, everyone, we're going to go ahead and get started. Go ahead and grab a seat. And um, before we start, I am going to pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, and not just the word that we read, but the word that came into the world, the word who is Jesus, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we consider the life of Jesus and the person of Jesus, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see him clearly. I remember reading a prayer a long time ago in a devotional written by uh, someone from a long time ago, and it said, Holy Spirit, help me love Jesus more today than I did yesterday. And I pray that that would be true, that you would help us with that. For me, as a, um, as a weak, very fallible preacher, to all of us who are here, would you help us see Jesus clearer today? And in seeing him clearer, would we love him more? and worship him more. It's his name we pray. Amen. So in March 1966, the Evening Standard, a newspaper in London, uh, published a weekly interview with band members of the Beatles. And the Beatles at that time were less than five years into uh, kind of their mega fame, you know, the Beatlemania situation. Kind of the, honestly, I mean, it's pretty funny. Like last night watching the playoff game, it's like them cutting to Taylor Swift every five minutes. It was like that. It's like they just were in everything all the time. And so uh, before there were Swifties, there was Beatlemania. And um, they were experiencing some of the largest success to, uh, largest success a musical act ever had. Again, they, they, they come up at the time of uh, not just records, but, but accessible planes and mass communication and television and all that stuff. And high on that popularity, John Lennon, in a moment where he was really feeling himself, said, Christianity will come and go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I will be right and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. Now, more popular than Jesus, that's a claim. Now, here's what you need to know. Fast forward 50 years to 2016, eight years ago, and there was a guy named Kanye West, a.k.a. Ye, a.k.a. the college dropout. And he put out a record with Rihanna and a special guest not known for his collaboration with hip-hop artists, a man named Paul McCartney, a 74-year-old member of the Beatles. And uh, uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, a.k.a. X. Uh, I'm doing a lot of AKAs today. I didn't plan on that. It's not my notes. It's not helpful. I'm just going to stop. We're going to end it right there with that. But Twitter was abuzz with excitement about this record, but not for the reasons you would think. They're not like, wow, two music giants coming together. Uh, for a lot of millennials and a lot of Gen Z kids, they were really, uh, they, they weren't just confused about the collaboration. They were excited about this new artist. A couple of tweets that ruled through that day, that record came out. Who the heck is Paul McCartney? This is why I love Ye. He shines light onto unknown artists. Who is this Paul McCartney? He's about to blow up thanks to number two, Kanye. I don't know who Paul McCartney is, but Kanye is going to give this man a career with this new song. Now, needless to say, people were pretty confused about who Paul McCartney was and all that stuff. Again, there's hundreds of tweets on this thing. And then last year, Paul McCartney kind of copped that, you know, this happened. He did an interview with GQ magazine, and he talked about working with Kanye. And he said, the great thing is all sorts of historical things came out of it. I mean, there's a lot of people that think Kanye discovered me, and that's not a joke. So for guys who would be more popular than Jesus... 50 years later, it doesn't look like that is going to hold true. 
Not because the Beatles are lame. They're exceptional musicians. They were and are phenomenal musicians. But no one has shaped history more than Jesus. Um, he's a man who had zero political power. He's a man who never won a war. He's a man who never owned property. He's a man who never rolled around in an automobile or an airplane. He's a man who, ex who lived before there was mass communication. He's a man who lived the majority of his life in obscurity. A man who, as an adult, never traveled further than 125 miles from his non-influential hometown. Today, I'm going to go up to Rancho to preach at their gathering tonight, Restored Rancho. Um, I'll go almost as far as Jesus would have gone his entire adult life. It'll be less than two hours. A man who only had a few followers when he died, a shameful death on the cross. But he's a Jesus who will not go away in spite of all of that. Again, Jesus is the most famous, uh, Gary Bashir, uh, theology professor, Western Seminary says this. He says, Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. In fact, Jesus looms so large over human history that we actually measure time by him. Our calendar is divided into the years before and after his death, noted as B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, meaning in the year of the Lord, respectively. No army, nation, or person has changed human history to the degree that Jesus, this homeless man from Nazarene, has. Some 2,000 years after he walked the earth, Jesus remains as talked about as ever. In other words, Jesus is still trending. It's, it's 2,024 years later, we are uh, in another part of the world, and we're still talking about him in a way that's just not true of anyone else. Uh, John Orberg, author, pastor, says this, says, Jesus is history's most familiar figure. His impact on the world is immense and non-accidental. Great men have sometimes tried to secure immortality by having cities named after them. The ancient world was littered with, littered with cities that Alexander named Alexandria and Caesar named Caesarea. While Jesus was still alive, he had no place to live. Yet today I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, which has its name because a man named Francis was once a follower of this man, Jesus, St. Francis of Assisi. Our state capital is named Sacramento because Jesus once had a meal with his followers, the Last Supper, that became known as Sacrament. You cannot look at a map without being reminded of this man. Now, again, Jesus is the most captivating, famous, most misunderstood figures in history. And he's also what this series is going to be all about. We're going to be looking at it. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're, gonna be, we're not going to go all the way through the gospel of Mark. We're just going to do Mark 1. But I think you'll see that there's a lot just in Mark 1 itself. This series will be called A Day in the Life, where we're reminded of who Jesus was, how he lived, and what was, what was he all about. What can we learn about him and ourselves as we see the one that we're called to become like? And so today we're going to look at this basic yet all-important question to kick this series off. Who is the Jesus we will be studying? And to help answer that question again, we'll be in Mark chapter 1. And since it's the first week in a series on Mark chapter 1, spoiler alert, we're going to look at verse 1. So if you guys have Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. I'll be reading from the CSB, the one Jesus loves the most. <clears throat> says this. The beginning of the gospel is a Bible translation joke for the nerds in the room. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. 
And then in verse 4, we're going to see this guy, John the Baptist, who is this forerunner, who is this person who comes before. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. By the way, all there doesn't mean every single person. It's like all types of people. Verse 6, John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I, this man that everyone is coming to, this man Jesus will one day say is the greatest man who's ever been born um, by, you know, but created by two human beings. He says, I, verse 7, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I think in our like hyper-therapeutic culture, when we see John the Baptist going, I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie his sandals, you're like, dog, you need some self-esteem, right? Like you're being hard on yourself. And what you need to see here is this isn't a man who has confidence issues. This is a man who sees Jesus clearly. He's calling all of Jerusalem out to repent. He's, he's not a dude who cares what people think. He's not walking around going, I hope they like me. He's, he's, he's not wearing great clothes. He's not sucking up to the religious or political establishment. He eats bugs. He cares about what God thinks and, and, and that alone as you look at his life. He knows who he is and who he isn't. In other words, it's not that he has a low view of himself. It's that he has a high view of Jesus. And so this passage today is going to shape um, where, where uh, this passage today is going to is going to shape our message, because ultimately this message is about who this Jesus is, having an accurate view of him and responding to him rightly. And that's what we're going to talk about. I have three questions that I'm going to look at today that, by the way, I, I have three questions that are that are basic if you've been in church for a while, but they are absolutely essential. Air is basic, but without it, you die. These truths around Jesus, they're basic to the Christian faith. They're essential, though, because without them, we do not have access to abundant life. And so three questions I want to answer. One, who is Jesus? Two, why did he come? And three, how should we respond to him? Number one, who is Jesus? Mark 1.1 1, 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, according to this verse, Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, which is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And by the way, it's not just Mark who believes Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus talks about his own identity in Matthew chapter 16 in a different gospel. And I'll read there, Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, this great Old Testament prophet, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, you are the Christos, you are the Son of of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So he's saying, yeah, you're right. You see me clearly. You didn't get that from me. You're not smarter, Peter. 
or better than the other people around. God has revealed my identity to you. And yeah, I'm, I am the Messiah. And so Jesus believed he was the Messiah of Israel. You might be wondering who was Israel. By the way, when we talk about Israel, don't think of the, the, the modern day nation state of Israel. We don't have time to get into that today, but Israel in the Old Testament is the people of God. Uh, again, back in the book of Genesis, Abraham, God promised that he would make a great nation and be a blessing to the nations through his lineage. He had Isaac, who had Jacob, who was given the name Israel, the one who struggles with God. And by the way, Israel would struggle with God throughout the Old Testament. They fail over and over and over again. And what do they fail at? They fail at the job that they were given. Again, the Israelites are the people God had chosen to restore the broken worlds. But over and over, we kept seeing them becoming a part of the problem. Israel was kind of like a, um, someone who goes into like politics with pure motives, and they want to change the system, and they want to like make things right, and then eventually they get corrupted by that very same system and tend to embody the worst of what the political world is, if that makes sense. So they were supposed to go out into the world and be a light unto the nations, but actually they let the nations impact who they became and they stopped being a light. They, stopped, they started being very dark. They started uh, promoting idolatry and injustice just like the nations around them in the ancient Near East, and they become a part of the problem and arguably a worse part of the problem because they have the law, Paul will argue later in Romans. They should know better. And they're the ones God's commissioned to this work. And so Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Craig Bartholomew, a Bible scholar, says this. He says, the Greek word Christos, Christ, translates the Hebrew word Messiah, anointed one. In Old Testament days, certain people were anointed with oil to take up some special office, such as that of high priest Aaron, or king David, or prophet Elisha. The anointing signified that this person was specifically chosen and prepared by God to carry out the appointed task. During the intertestamental period, the term Messiah or Christ was used prophetically as the title of the figure whom God would appoint to restore his rule and usher in his kingdom. This title often took on political and military connotations. Jesus accepts the confession of Peter. Indeed, Jesus is the Messiah. But the popular understandings of what the anointed one is and of what God calls them to do are not adequate. Therefore, John, Jesus warns the disciples not to tell anyone who he is. So again, Peter got right, you're the Messiah, but he still had a wrong view of what the Messiah came to do. He was thinking military general that's going to overthrow Rome and bring in like political salvation for Israel, not someone who's come to save the world and save us from our sins. By the way, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title, Jesus the Messiah, okay? Uh, Jesus' parents weren't named Joseph and Mary Christ, okay? We're going to go to dinner at the Christ family. It means the Messiah or anointed one. So I like to call Jesus, Jesus Messiah. It, it frames it in a way that's, that's maybe a little bit clearer for us who are overused to the phrase Jesus Christ. But again, don't forget, Jesus doesn't just show up in the New Testament as a random new character falling out of the sky. He's interwoven in the Old Testament story. He's the long-awaited Messiah. In other words, he, he's anointed for a task to save or to rescue. And again, he is the hero of Israel, but ultimately Israel only existed to be a light to the nations, which they ultimately failed at. So Jesus is ultimately, in being the hero of Israel, he's a hero of the world. So that's who Jesus is. Number two, why did Jesus come? First thing he came to do is to bring God's kingdom to earth. 
in Mark 1, 14 through 15, which we'll look at in a few weeks. It said, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, which means turn from and believe the good news. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from doing life on your terms and do it on Jesus's terms. Again, remember the narrative so far in the Bible when Jesus shows up, God creates the first humans. He establishes his kingdom in the garden. He tells them to expand it, but instead they corrupt it. And then God promises Eve that he would send a deliverer or a Messiah who would restore it all. And then God chooses Abraham and Israel and wanted to bring his kingdom to earth through them, but they kept failing miserably. So now God gets his hands dirty and says, I will do it. I will enter into human history. And he comes himself to proclaim and demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like on earth. And, and don't forget, we've said this a lot at our church. The kingdom of God is what it would be like if God was in charge. It's what it would be like if the fall never happens. It's a place where the sick are healed, where the lonely are set into families, where those who are wronged in an unjust world receive true justice. It's a place where wars would be ended. It's a place where, where all of creation, where the environment would be healed, where racism would be a thing of the past, where sexual assault would be something that never happens. Sin and the effects of sin would be eradicated forever. And all throughout Mark and the life of Jesus, you see that wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom of God breaks in with him. It changes. The whole atmosphere changes. The dynamic changes. Something we've used, uh, uh, there's a Bible scholar named Gordon Fee, and one of the ways that he describes the way that Jesus brought the kingdom is, he says that, if you, uh, he uses the analogy of World War II. In World War II, um, there's a thing called D-Day and a thing called V-Day. And D-Day is like the thing that you see at the beginning of Save It, Private Ryan. It's like a, it's an intense day of battle where essentially the Allies break the Nazis, and the war is essentially over. Like, they don't have a chance anymore, right? Um, it's like they, the game is over, but we still have to, the technicality of finishing it out. So there's mop-up duty. And then there's V-Day when the war actually ends. But for all intents and purposes, when Jesus shows up, he begins the work. He, he struck the death blow. And now the results of that death blow spread out over time, ending evil, ending darkness, ending brokenness. And one day that victory will be fully realized and experienced. But it was inaugurated when he came. Does that make sense? Because one day there'll be a day where there is no sickness and there is no sin. And the effects of sin are gone and so he came to bring the kingdom of God. Number two, he came to seek and save the lost. In other words, to reconcile humanity to God, which is no small thing for us as humans. Again, humanity has fractured its relationship with God. And here's the thing. Relationships are only repaired if one or both parties is prepared to forgive the other to start over. And the storyline of the scripture says we had no interest and bridging the gap. We had no interest in pursuing God. He pursued us. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 5.31-32, Jesus says, as Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to Repentance. So Jesus wasn't calling the good, healthy, and beautiful. He came looking for the lost, the bad, the sick, the ugly, the sinful, which is very good news for us. 
Because I don't know if you know this, like that's that's us. That TV show, This Is Us. We're broken. We've been hurt by people and we have hurt people. No one in this room is innocent and no one in this room hasn't been some type of victim. And Jesus comes and he sees the mess we've made, hurting ourselves, hurting others, hurting his world, hurting him, breaking his law, breaking his hearts, and experiencing all the brokenness that comes with that. All the brokenness that comes from being disconnected from our life source, from being disconnected from the one who gives us purpose and trying to live a life of purpose and meaning without him and all the trouble we got ourselves into. Can we see this in Luke 15, right, where the, where, where the son comes running home and Jesus basically says, this is what God is like. He's like this father. This is what humanity is like. It's like the son who runs away and does his own thing and gets into a lot of trouble. And I don't know your story, friends, but like I know you've gotten yourself into a lot of trouble before. And there's different types of trouble. But we were all in need of saving. Like we're all in need of rescuing. And, and to see Jesus clearly, we see that we need him to be that rescuer. Um, scholar at Wheaton College, John Dickinson, he says this. He says, according to the Gospels, by name as well as by title, Jesus is the one who came to save men and women from divine judgment. Here we arrive at one of the striking differences between the first century and the 21st century. Jesus lived in a culture so keenly aware of God's just judgment that he had difficulty convincing people that sinners could be welcomed to the divine table. And then he continues, ironically, probably under the influence of Jesus' teaching, many in the West today are so used to the— no so people that are influenced by Jesus' teaching, but they're not Christians themselves, he says— um, Ironically, probably under the influence of that teaching, many in the West today are so used to the notion of divine love that, that Jesus would now have difficulty convincing us that we're sinners in the first place. But Jesus never taught that God accepts men and women because he is pleased with them just the way they are. Far from it. He insisted that humanity's incessant search for wealth at the expense of the poor is truly damnable. He said that a person's love for the things of creation while ignoring the creator himself is what makes him or her a sinner. This is a point made clear in the famous parable of the prodigal son. There is a metaphor about the sinner. Jesus tells how a young man, the sinner, offended his father God by demanding the family inheritance and then leaving home to spend his father's goods on himself. The son wanted everything the father had to offer. He just did not want the father himself. This is what a sinner is, according to Jesus. And it, can and it is only against this backdrop that his title, Savior, can even be understood. According to the Gospels, Jesus perceived his entire mission in terms of saving sinners from the coming judgment. Close quote. Again, in the Gospels, we see Jesus pursuing those who most assumed that they were going to be judged, and he gives them salvation. In Luke's gospel, there's a moving account. There's a man on the cross next to Jesus. If you remember the story, and he asks Jesus to remember him, a man who knows he deserves to be judged. He says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And then Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. This is such a powerful account of the cross. What I love is that there's no religion or moralism here. Uh, there's no complex theology or discipleship program, just someone seeing they are unworthy and making a humble, wise request for mercy. 
I don't really understand how anyone could have believed in that moment, seeing Jesus hanging on the cross, that he was a king over a kingdom, that he was the Messiah. But this man saw Jesus clearly. I mean, his own disciples who had traveled with him for three years assumed Jesus lost. That's what makes Black Saturday Black Saturday. That, 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 it's kind of Black Sabbath, actually. It's kind of wild. It's like a rock band. But, but, but it, makes, it makes the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection as painful as it is because they don't, they, they don't understand. They think Jesus lost. Messiahs don't die. But this criminal sees what others missed. Not saving himself is exactly how Jesus would save others. He didn't lose. He chose to give his life away. And in that moment of clarity about who Jesus was, he receives one of the clearest promises of salvation. I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Which leads to another reason why Jesus came, which is to reveal who God truly is. This idea of revelation. In John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11, Jesus was with his disciples, and there's this guy, Philip, and he asks him this question. It says, Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. In other words, like we've been walking around a lot, you've been teaching us a lot about God, but like show us him. Show us what he's like. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. My own authority, in other words. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard my teaching, you've heard the teaching of the Father. If you've seen my heart reflected, my compassion reflected to these people, to you and to them for all of these years. When you see me feed people, that's the heart of the Father, the character of the Father. Again, Orthodox theology, like he, he's a distinct person in the Trinity, but he has the same character as the Father, the same holiness as the Father. And it's in him that we see the image of God clearly. We see what we were supposed to be when we look at him. He reveals God to us and the image of God to us. Max Lucado, this uh, uh, pastor teacher, uh, he tells the story of a young woman raised in a small town outside of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. He says this, Christina had always longed to experience the bright lights and party atmosphere of Brazil's famous city, but her mother had often warned her off Unemployment in the city was high at this time. Strip joints and brothels were just about the only places offering jobs to young women. Christina did not listen. One day she packed her bags and secretly took off to the city, terrified at what might become of her daughter. Christina's mother set out to find her. She searched the vast city in vain. Fearing the worst, she visited some of Rio's sleaziest establishments. And on the walls of these places, she pinned photos of herself. On the, photo of, on the back of each photo, she wrote a simple message pleading with her daughter to come home, writing, whatever you have done, it doesn't matter, Christina, please come home. Christina did eventually find herself employed in a Rio brothel. She was too ashamed to go home, and even if she wanted to, she was unsure her mother would take her back. One day, Christina was stumbling down the stairwell of one of these places when she noticed on the wall a photo of her mother. And she took the Polaroid 
and read the message. And in that moment, gazing down at her were her mother's eyes. This image of her mother reminding her what she looked like and her confusion evaporated. The photo said it all, and she returned home at once. You see, the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of Jesus' divinity, declares that God has left a photo of himself in the world. Again, from, from the very beginning of the church to today, followers of Jesus have always claimed that in the life, teaching, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see God. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's who Jesus is. And so when we see Jesus, we know what God is like and we know that it's safe to come home to him, which is something you and I desperately need and we continue to need. Which leads to the last reason I want to highlight this morning in terms of why Jesus came. He came to make a new covenant by fulfilling the old one. In Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, he writes, quoting Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Mark reminds us here again that Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel, fulfilling what was prophesied about him hundreds of years before his birth. The people whom God had made a covenant with in the Old Testament to be a light to the nations, something they failed at. Again, Jesus comes in and fulfills the Old Testament completely. He comes and does what Israel could not do for itself or for the world it was supposed to go to. And as the one who fulfills the first covenant, the first testament, if you will, he's now able to create a new one. You see, Jesus is the true priest. He's the true king. He's the true prophet. He's the true image of man, the true son of man, the true son of God, the true exodus, the true Passover, the true deliverer, the true Sabbath. We can go on and on and on it goes. All throughout the New Testament, we're taught Jesus fulfilled this himself. And how did he do all this? In his life, death, and resurrection. Dying in our place as a substitute. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament are pointing to the true sacrifice. Instead of people being judged for their sins, the spotless sacrifice was and still is Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And friends, that means he takes away your sins. And will free you from the effects of, that, of those sins. Again, he's this lamb of God. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist, the guy we're going to look at here at the end of Mark, the guy we're about to talk about here in Mark, in John's gospel, he calls Jesus the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which on the cross is exactly what he does. He's the true Passover lamb. And so this is who Jesus is. This is what he's come to do, which leads to our last essential question. How should we respond to this Jesus? How should we respond to him? Again, I'll read uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Okay. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the whole Judean countryside, and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. 
Jean wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Again, he proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I, than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so how do we respond? We respond by repenting for the kingdom of heaven is here. We're going to see that in Mark in, in a few weeks. But again, repent means to turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from how you have been living. And humans have been trusting in themselves ever since the fall, seeking to do things our way on our terms. And it's ruined everything. I don't know if you guys have caught the news <laughs> or history or just thought about your own thought life in the last 36 hours. Jesus puts a choice in front of us. Trust me or trust yourself. You cannot remain neutral with Jesus. You either worship him or reject him. You either trust him or you don't. And again, we see this in John the Baptist here in our text. He sees clearly who Jesus is and the salvation he offers, and he humbly understands that he needs it. He honors Jesus and does what he says. He sees him as his savior, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he also does something else. He does what Jesus commands. Next week, um, Grant's going to talk about the baptism of Jesus. And we're going to look at John going, I, Jesus, I can't baptize you. And he goes, you need to. I'm telling you to. I'm commanding you. And so John the Baptist has turned from trusting in himself to trusting in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And Lord and the Savior has kind of become a cliche in American Christianity. Have you ever seen that before? Like some of the most like ungodly people you've ever seen in your life, like accept an award, like want to thank my Savior, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're like, whoa, really? Does he know? Do you know? Right, like, like you, you right? And again, Savior means you, you've actually asked him to save you. You admit you cannot save yourself. You're trusting in him to do for you what you cannot do. But it also means that you're, you're trusting him as your Lord. And Lord, in Greek, it's, it's the sort of doulos. It means master. Like you do what he says. Super popular in America. Following what someone else says. But you go, no, you're my master, you're my guru, you're my teacher. You determine what it means to be one of your followers. I don't get to decide that. You do. You set the terms. This is your kingdom. Um, our kids played uh, club sports for a while, and I remember one of the teams that they played on had a 12-page, like a 12 pages of like rules for what it meant to be on this team, to be a part of this program. And you couldn't be on the team if you didn't actually practice and play and suit up and pay your dues and travel and see the coach as your coach. If a kid was walking around telling people, hey, I'm a member of this team, and the guy that ran the program overheard you, you can imagine him asking him, hey, how are you on this team, you know, if you're not on the team? Like, you, you don't play, you don't practice, you don't suit up, you don't pay dues, you don't travel, right? You imagine a kid going, I just like to think of myself as being on this team, right? It's like, no, you're, you're not. That would be so silly. And in the same way, so we're like, oh, I kind of think of myself as a Christian. I don't, yeah, I don't practice his teachings. He says, forgive, I don't forgive people, right? He had some wild stuff he said about sexuality. I don't really believe that. I just, you know, I'm kind of doing, you know, it's a new day. 
So many people who claim to be Christians. By the way, this is what gives the church its worst name is people who claim to follow Jesus who don't actually follow Jesus. People that go, man, you know, I'm self-righteous, judgmental, greedy, bitter, divisive. And I determine what's right and wrong. And it's usually based on how I feel. That's not a follower of Jesus. I never repent and ask God or others for forgiveness. And I don't make concrete plans or attempt to obey and become like Jesus. I'm a Christian, though. Like, he's my Lord, man. Right? I might even get a t-shirt. Jesus is my home Lord. My landlord. I don't know. I'm a Christian, though, right? It's like, and Jesus goes, how are you my disciple? I just like to think of myself as a Christian. It's like, it's not a, a category you check on a census. It, it's, a, it's a way of life. It's giving your heart to him. It's so funny, man. People can get offended when they're told, hey, according to the Jesus of Scripture, you're like, you're not a follower of Jesus, which is interesting. Again, it's like, I'm on the basketball team in my own way. But at Jesus, ironically, he commanded his disciples to challenge one another and ask them to ask themselves if they're actually in the faith. To, to, to not judge in a condemning way, but to judge in an evaluative way. Hey, am I actually following Jesus right now? I love Grant's message last week, man. Where are you actually at with Jesus? So these ideas of Jesus being Lord and Savior in the New Testament, both are connected to the idea of faith. And faith is just another word for trust. Pistos, it means trust. If he's your savior, it means you trust that Jesus and Jesus alone can make you right with God by what he did on the cross and in the resurrection. And if he's your Lord, it means you trust him enough to actually obey him and apply his teachings day in and day out and teach others to do the same. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Will you accept a, excuse me, will you accept a pardon from the king and know that you can be with him in paradise? And will you actually follow his teaching this year? Will you trust him? I remember we did, we did uh, the Sermon on the Mount last year. Like, Jesus taught us how to follow him. Do we actually take that seriously? And do we go, ah, oh, it's just kind of a, a thing to read. Or do we go, no, you're Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this perfectly. I'm going to keep needing his forgiveness. He even says in the Lord's Prayer, which is contained in the content of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, forgive us for our trespasses. It's a daily prayer. He knows you're not going to be perfect. But do you actually even pray? <laughs> Do you follow him with your, with your finances or your sexuality? Do you actually seek to love enemies? Do you seek humility? Do you follow what he says about judging others or handling conflict or stewarding power and influence? What he says about him being more important than anything else? More, he's, he should be more important than, than your wealth, than your family, than your church, than fulfilling your dreams for yourself. He is the, the aim. I want to ask, uh, when it comes to trusting Jesus, have you trusted him? Have you trusted him for forgiveness and reconciliation? Like, and if you haven't, by the way, that's no problem. If you want to do that, we'd love to help you pray to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and to be reconciled to him. We would love to do that. But I also want to ask those of you who go, yeah, yeah, I've done that, I've done that. Um, are, are you trusting him actively into the adventure of obedience? actually practicing his ways and seeking to become like him and love like him. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. We can hit the lights. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. Jesus, you're so big. There's so much we could say about you. There's so many ways we could respond. 
so many different ways we could respond obediently and also so many different ways we could, we could try to ignore you or reject you. Well, we can't ignore you, sorry, reject you. What we can't do is ignore you. No matter how far um, we try to run away from you or society tries to move away from you, there's this ache for you. There's a sense of haunting in our souls, like we were made for more, we were made for you. And Lord, um, everyone in this room has, has trusted in themselves to build an identity, has trusted themselves to remove their guilt and shame, has trusted in themselves when it comes to knowing what they think is best about any given topic rather than starting with what you think and then adjusting. And so, Lord, we're just so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful that we can trust you afresh in a new way today. We can freshly trust you and, th and ask you for forgiveness again, and, and, and you'll grant it. And also we can trust you afresh, like following you into the new year, like John the Baptist. I think about, Jesus, I think about the wedding at Cana, and I think about when you turn water into wine, and some of our lives right now, they've kind of, over the last few years, they've turned into like stale water. <laughs> We're like a vessel with, with stale water. And you want to turn it into wine. And I just think about Mary talking to the wedding attendant saying, listen to him and do what he says. And as they do that, water turns into wine. And I think you want to make some of our lives so much richer, so much more beautiful, so much more abundant. But we have to listen to you and do what you say. And for some of us, last year was a year of us doing a lot of our own thing. And so, Lord, would you graciously help us get back on track? Would you take us by the hand? Would you help us listen to you? Would you get eye contact with us? And would you help us do what you say this year? As we go to the table to communion again, I thank you for your life and your death. You died to save us from ourselves, from sin and death, guilt and shame. And it was your joy to do it because you wanted us. You want abundant life for us. That's what you want for us. You don't want sad religious drudgery. You want life and life abundant, life and life into the full. And in 2024, would you help us walk into life into the full, which is not possible without you. There's no abundant life without Jesus. There's good circumstances for a season. But Lord, would you give us abundant life as we trust you in a fresh way this year? In your name we pray, amen.